Hello and welcome to Podcasts by Brodies. My name is David Lee and this is the fourth episode in the Case Files podcast series. In the Case Files, we look back at notable court cases over the last 150 years and discover how Brodie's lawyers through the ages have played their part in key legal moments. In each episode, we'll be talking to Brodie's modern-day legal experts to discover how their predecessors helped shape the way the law is applied today. So welcome to episode four of the Case Files, 2P or not 2P. The Case Files series focuses on Brodie's advocacy team, and in this episode, I'm joined by Neil McLean and Brian Campbell, who are both solicitor advocates with the firm. This case dates from the 1980s and focuses on employment law, and specifically a business which undergoes a change of ownership. Nowadays, when this happens, employees will usually be protected under the transfer of undertakings, brackets, protection of employment, close brackets, regulations, or 2P, as they're usually known. But back in the 1980s, the 2P regulations were in a simpler form, and many questions about how they operate had yet to be answered. This became an issue after Fourth Dry Dock and Engineering went into receivership. The receivers made a number of employees redundant on appointment and then arranged to transfer the business to another company. The employees complained about unfair dismissal and that their jobs should have been protected by the 2P regulations in one of the first cases about the implementation of European directives in domestic UK law. So, Neil, can you take us back to the time? Uh, we'd been through the 1980s with lots of bitter employment disputes and we'd seen a lot of heavy industrial decline. What do we know about Fourth Dry Dock and Engineering and why it called in the receivers? Well, David, much of what we know about Fourth Dry Dock and Engineering is summarised in the actual decision itself. The Fourth Dry Dock was the subsidiary and a member of a group of companies headed by a parent company. And those companies had defaulted in payments to Lloyds Bank PLC. Fourth Dry Dock was a ship repairing company and carried out its business under a lease at the Edinburgh Dock at Leith. And I think there is still a dry dock there to this day, but some shipping enthusiasts can no doubt keep me right on that. Um, what we also know is that the shipping industry went through a deep recession from the middle of the 1970s to the middle of the 1980s for a whole range of complex reasons. And it seems that Fourth Dry Dock was one of the victims of that crisis. So although we're talking about a case that is actually reported in 1990, the dispute itself dates back to the, the early 80s. Um, it was September 1983 when Lloyds Bank PLC first appointed receivers to the companies in the group, um, including Fourth Dry Dock. And that timeline is important because um, the actual dispute then started in February 1984, after the receivers transferred the business to the new owners, Fourth Estuary Engineering Limited. So it's a dispute that took almost six years to resolve, which is probably about the norm for cases that went all the way to the House of Lords in those days. Okay. And, and, and Brian, what about the 2P regulations back then? What status did they have uh, in UK law and why were they perhaps open to interpretation? Yes. Well, at the time of this case, uh, we're, of course, talking about the original Chupi regulations of 1981, which came into force the following year. So at the beginning of uh, this dispute, they were still relatively new and they were created to give direct effect to a European Union or back then, of course, EEC directive from 1977 that was commonly referred to as the Acquired Rights Directive and its aim was to protect and safeguard the rights of employees on the transfer of a business. So before the regulations 
came into effect, I think it's important to remember that there was really nothing to protect employees against losing their jobs when the business employing them changed hands because you had the common law doctrine of delectus personae that basically said, well, no employer can have employees forced on them. They have the right to choose. So there was really no remedy or, or set of rights for employees before uh, 1982. And one of the key provisions and really the main one uh, in the original regulations was Regulation 5. And it basically said that uh, business transfer wouldn't end people's contracts, but rather they would transfer to the new owner. Uh, and so they would have um, ancillary benefits like their continuity of service would be preserved and any rights or claims that they would have against their original employer would transfer and work against the new employer. And that was really important. And in terms of who was protected, well, the regulation said that it was anyone who was employed immediately before the transfer, which really became the key issue in these cases. OK. And, and so what do we know about this particular case in, in relation to those regulations? How did Fourth Dry Dock and Engineering uh, and the receivers inform the workers about the redundancy and what was the response? Yeah, well, um, as Neil said, the, the company went into receivership and as is common, the receiver began looking for a buyer. Uh, and it took a few months before one was found. It was a new company that was formed called Fourth Estuary Engineering Limited. And an agreement was entered into with them for the sale of the assets. But one hour before the sale was completed, uh, the 12 applicant employees uh, were handed letters by the receivers saying that the company was being wound up due to a lack of funds and they were being dismissed with immediate effect. So there was no money to pay them the wages that they'd earned or for any holidays they'd accrued or for the notice that they weren't now going to be given. Uh, and all of this had been agreed with the new owners as a condition of the sale. So it was a very calculated plan, one might almost say cynically so. And so the case started back in 1984 as a set of claims by these 12 employees and an employment tribunal. And of course, back then, that would have been referred to as an, an industrial tribunal. And through a series of appeals, it made its way to the Court of Session in Edinburgh and then ultimately to the House of Lords, or nowadays, as we'd call it, the Supreme Court. And as the new owners of the business wouldn't employ any of these claimants, the claims centred around whether they'd been employed immediately before the transfer and therefore they were entitled to the protection of the regulations. And of course, they argued that they were, uh, but the receivers and the directors of Fourth Dry Dock uh, and also the new owners all argued that they hadn't. OK, I mean, as you say, the cynical probably is a fair word there, Brian. It, it, it's taking it's taking game in the system to a bit of a new level, telling them an hour before. Uh, you know, do you think we're clearly in a very different era than we are, you know, 30 years later? Very much so. Very much so. Uh, and one of the things that we come to is that, um, well, a number of employment practices have changed. Uh, and and as, as you alluded to at the beginning, David, um, there were a lot of unanswered questions about how these provisions domestically would actually work. Uh, and it, even even now, uh, cases are being decided on, on some of the finer and more subtle points in terms of the operation of the regulations. So we, we've learned from this case and others over the years, but I think we continue to learn because they are and can be difficult to grapple with in reality. So we'll, we'll, we'll probably we'll probably say that fourth dry dock and, uh, and engineering probably couldn't have got away with that 30 years on. But um, Neil, where do, where do Brodies come in? Who did Brodies represent in this case? And what, what do we know from the time about how the case began and progressed through the courts? So Brodies acted for the new owners, fourth estuary engineering limited. 
Um, and as as Brian has, has set out, um, the employees brought a claim for unfair dismissal initially, and that was against both Fourth Dry Dock and Fourth Estuary Engineering. But because Fourth Dry Dock had transferred its business to Fourth Estuary, um, Fourth Estuary basically stepped in and defended um, the action, and, and it progressed through the courts in the way that, that Brian set out helpfully for us, um, ending in, in the House of Lords. So I did look for records at the time, and David, I want you to imagine a montage here where I am in at Brody's HQ, poring through the archives. Now, all of these files are actually held on microfiche, but I could find nothing that would tell us what the lawyers at the time made of it um, for the per- benefits of this um, podcast. But what I do know is that our late partner, the great David Williamson QC, led in the case for Brodie's. Now, David was a, a huge inspiration to a number of lawyers in the firm, and some of the lawyers he mentored are still partners today. Um, David's credited with transforming Brodie's litigation and practice, and I think was the first ever solicitor advocate QC. So Brian and I and, and the other solicitor advocates in the firm owe David a huge debt. Um, I, I never met David. He, he had um, retired by the time I joined the firm, but he's remembered incredibly fondly for his deep knowledge of the law and also his skill as a litigator. Um, and the case we're talking about today actually features in David's obituary published by the Law Society of Scotland, um, where it's noted that he enjoyed getting to grips with the law, particularly where the law might be changing, such as his 1989 case of Litster against Fourth Dry Dock and Engineering Co., Afterwards, he could tell his client that he'd only lost when the House of Lords decided to change the law. So it's never easy to tell your client they've lost in court, but that's as good a reason as you can get. Absolutely. Now, as, as you've said, you've said there, Neil, that we don't know what the Brodie's lawyers at the time made of it. Uh, but what, what about the judge? What about the judges? What did they have to say about the, the receivers and, uh, and their behaviour at this time? So that, so that touches on something that Brian's all, already mentioned and, and what was done in the past and what you might get away with in, in modern times. And it's perhaps probably the, the more interesting things about the case for, for non-lawyers. It's fair to say the judges were not impressed at all um, about what happened here, but they voiced their displeasure with the usual judicial restraint. So, so what the court said is that it could hardly have been a fortunate coincidence that officers from the redundancy payment section were already at the dock on the afternoon that the two owners, Mr. Hughes and Mr. Page, arrived at. Mr. Page and Mr. Hughes had come straight from our offices, actually, where the agreement to transfer the business had been signed. And what the court said about that was that one of the less credible aspects of the matter is that one of the appellants, Mr. Walker, who was the union shop steward, asked specifically whether the business was being taken over by Fourth Estuary. And he was told by Mr. Hughes that he knew nothing about a new company taking over. And Mr. Page said that he knew nothing about a company called Fourth Estuary Engineering. Uh, and the court said that this indicates a calculated disregard for the ob- obligations imposed by Regulation 10 of the regulations. So for, that's probably as strong as you're going to get in judicial terms, particularly in the House of Lords at those times. And and so, can you just sum up for us, you know, what the what the final decision was, and what it and what it rested upon in this particular case? So, uh, so I'm conscious that, that the Brian will have something to say as an employment law expert, which I, which I'm not. Um, the outcome of the case was that 
the employee's appeal was allowed, so they were appealing from the court of session on the basis that they had been unfairly dismissed. And what the court said is that the 1981 regulation had been enacted for the purposes of complying with the 1977 directive, which Brian's referred to, and that provided for the safeguarding of employees' rights and the transfer of a business. Um, The court also said that the courts of the United Kingdom were under a duty to follow the practice of the European Court of Justice by giving what's called a purposive construction to directives and regulations issued for the purposes of complying with EU law. So you had to look at the the two pay regulations on that basis and that meant you had to construe them um, so that it applied to a a person employed immediately before the transfer or who would have been so employed if they'd not been unfairly dismissed before the transfer for a reason connected with the transfer. So in basic terms, looking at protecting and safeguarding employees' rights in a situation where you, you have action um, taken to try and defeat those those rights. Okay. And and Brian, what, what does this case tell us? Why is it important in terms of employment law and in terms of that relationship between European and, and UK law? Yeah. Well, well, as an employment lawyer, certainly the case reminds me of how much employment law across the UK is derived from European law in the first place. Um, Because it exists at domestic level to meet the requirements under the old EEC treaty, um, it's got to be effectively implemented domestically to to achieve that. And so that means, firstly, that that where it doesn't um, achieve that, then it will have to be changed. And that's really a question of when rather than if. And there have been challenges to that effect uh, in other cases which have brought about either law changes or introduction of domestic law where there wasn't any. And secondly, and I think more pertinently to this case, it means that domestic law have to be interpreted in a way that best gives the effect to the original purpose or aim of the parent directive. And so Litster reminds us that courts and tribunals have to do this. And so because the core objective of this directive, the Acquired Rights Directive, was to safeguard employee rights on a business transfer, the TUPI regulations had to be applied in a way that achieved that aim as best as possible. And so that went as far as as requiring the Lords to read in extra wording alongside the wording that was actually there, as Neil says. So not just to protect people who were employed immediately before a transfer, however you define immediately, whether it's minutes, hours or days, but it also protects people who would have been in that position if they hadn't been unfairly dismissed because of the transfer. And so it really closed the loophole, if you like, or prevented people being dismissed on a technicality. And it wasn't the first time that uh, UK courts had taken that approach. Uh, Again, as an employment lawyer, um, I'm aware that in earlier cases involving things like equal pay and uh, gender-based discrimination or equality, the House of Lords had to do the same thing. Uh, And so the outcome really was that... um, We've got protection of employees against being dismissed an hour before or a day before or even sometimes longer before a transfer uh, and and therefore they had the right to have their contracts or at least their claims and their rights transfer and be exercisable against the new owner of the business rather than being stuck with the old owner. And of course, in cases like Litster, where the original employer is insolvent, that's especially important um, because it can make the difference between an individual being able to seek reinstatement or get payment uh, of their rights, as opposed to not getting anything at all. 
And was and was this a kind of definitive moment in terms of two P regulations, or were there, were there subsequent cases where there were still grey areas, or did did this really really change things? Well, it, it certainly clarified this aspect of Tupi. Um, so it was uh, an important and a groundbreaking decision. It did really, at a stroke, rule out any of these potential practices that uh, business owners might have been thinking about that you alluded to before, David, where you could get around the regulations by terminating contracts, sometimes as close to a transfer uh, as an hour before. So that was taken away automatically um, and left uh, employers with very little wriggle room uh, to collude with anyone who might be purchasing their assets to defeat the rights of employees. And, and why is this case still so relevant 30 years on? And uh, when, when have we heard about it recently in, uh, in other court cases? I mean, it's, it's a really important decision about the interpretation of, of EU law um, and the principle that this domestic legislation implementing EU law is to be given a purpose of interpretation. Um, so I mentioned that a moment ago. Um, a purpose of interpretation is, is a rule of statutory interpretation used by the courts that means you look at the purpose of a piece of legislation and interpret it in accordance with that purpose. So kind of coming back to what Brian and I both said a moment ago, here you're looking at well, what was the purpose of this direction? Well, it was the protection of employees to ensure that their rights are safeguarded. So when you're making decisions about the law, you've, you've always got to have that in your mind and um, when you're interpreting what the regulations um, say. Um, Brian's talked about its impact on employment law. Um, it's still a, a case that's referred to as legal authority for adopting that purposive approach to the interpretation of EU law, including two cases from this year, uh, one in which Brodie's acted, Scottish Legal Aid Board, um, against Ormiston's Law Practice Limited. So still a relevant authority um, and still something that the courts will, will, will have regard to. Okay. Uh, and what is the what's the potential now without getting too political here now that the uk is no longer a member of the european union is there a potential that uh, the uk might seek to kind of shape 2p regulations uh, in its own image a little bit more well we we could do a whole separate podcast on how eu law operates in the uk post brexit um, we now have a new type of law which exists in Scotland called retained EU law. So the easiest way to think about that is it's effectively a freeze frame or snapshot of EU law at the moment right before Brexit. But post-Brexit, the UK is now free to make new laws that diverge from the EU. But there's two two important points really to add to that. Um, the first is, is how decisions of the European Court of Justice are, are going to be treated Um it's still likely that they'll be relevant in interpreting EU law post-Brexit. Um, although the Court of Justice has no jurisdiction, there's a recognition by the UK government that courts and tribunals um, can have regard to European decisions if they consider them appropriate. Um, and that's that's particularly the case in areas like Tupi, which are derived from EU law. And, and Brian may have something to say about that. Um, the, the position's also slightly different in Scotland because Scotland has passed a keeping pace law. And the intention there is that this keeping pace power will be used to maintain the alignment of Scots and EU law in certain areas. Now, the political reason for that power is that it would, in theory, make it easier for an independent Scotland to rejoin the EU post-independence because Scotland's laws would remain aligned with the EU and that would be a condition of, of entry to the EU. However, that power is limited to devolved areas only 
and employment law is not currently devolved. So there are limits uh, on the ability of the Scottish government to diverge from the rest of the UK in, in employment law. I don't know if Brian has anything to add but what, to what I've just said there. No, just just to agree with what Neil says, and I, I think where where that where that takes us in terms of a, a point to keep in mind is that certainly for a, for for the time being and for a while, um, Litster and the principle which it established will continue to be valid because um, um, retained EU law will have a, a shelf life and a relevance for for quite a while. Uh, and politically, I'm not aware of any reason to or any particular imperative to be changing. Um, the TRIPI regulations as they currently are, which incidentally now expressly incorporate the wording that the Lords had to read into it uh, back in back in 1990. So it would seem that as far as anyone can predict at the moment, um, the principle is still um, useful uh, in any cases that we might be dealing with from day to day. So, so going back, finally going back 40 years, Brian, we are unlikely to see any instances where employees find out uh, an hour before the firm is sold that they are being made redundant. We're not likely to see that happening at Leith Docks any time again. I, I would hope so. It would be much more difficult for an employer to argue that that was a fair practice and perhaps that's that's just as it should be. Thank you very much indeed to Neil McLean and Brian Campbell for their excellent insights today in episode four of The Case Files. The Case Files is part of Podcast by Brodies, where some of the country's leading lawyers share their enlightened thinking about the big issues and developments impacting the legal sector and what they mean for organisations, for businesses and for individuals across the UK. If you'd like to hear more, you can subscribe to The Case Files and other podcasts on Podcast by Brodies on all the main podcast platforms. And for more information and insights, please go to www.brodies.com.